Welcome here, everyone. This is a great Sunday, not just because uh, it's going to be, well, lead up to Christmas. That's always sort of a special season. But as David already said, it's our baptism Sunday, and uh, we're excited for those of you who are here to witness that. That'll be kind of at the end part of our our gathering time. We're going to spend some time in the Word of God as we do each week, and so I'd invite you uh, just to to a time of prayer uh, before we get going, and um, let me begin. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to gather together. Thank you, Lord, for guests who are here with us. Uh, God, I pray that this would indeed be a time when we are shaped, where we are encouraged, and perhaps convicted by your word. Lord, I pray that this would not just be a a time where we enter into quickly or superficially, but Lord, there would really be a sense in our hearts that we want to hear from you, Lord. The the great news is that you do speak to us uh, through your word and through your spirit, and so I pray that, uh, that, that, that that would happen now. Lord, as we look to your word, as we look back into the Old Testament, God, would you speak to us uh, as your people? And Lord, for those who are guests, not yet part of the church, um, Lord, I just pray you'd speak to them as well. God, speak to all of us. Draw us nearer to you by your grace and by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, if you are a guest, uh, we are just getting into kind of a Christmas sermon series called Where is the King? Uh, We are tracing this question back through kind of the centuries in terms of the people of God, uh, who, are, who are asking for a king. It's going to end with the, uh, the journey of the, the Magi uh, coming into Jerusalem, asking where's the, the one who's been born king of the Jews. But uh, we've gone all the way back to really the first time that that question was asked, which is in the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, the people of God uh, didn't so much ask for a king as demanded a king. They said, we want a king. Uh, give us a king. We think it'll be great. And uh, surprisingly, God agreed. Uh, Last week, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and here's the last verse of that chapter. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to to his city. And so we left off with everyone kind of going back home. And probably you would think with a pretty, um, pretty big sense of enthusiasm. You can imagine them walking with each other saying, man, I can't believe it. I can't believe it worked. God listened. This is going to be so great. I mean, if he's listening to us, this, this couldn't go bad. So they're very excited. Um, they don't have to wait very long. The very next chapter you'll see has been entitled, uh, if you're looking in your Bible, Saul chosen to be king. And so that's really the, the focus of our time together today is King Saul. And the title of the sermon is The Rise and Fall of King Saul. So if you weren't sure, you can already tell it doesn't go as great as the people hoped. Um, The whole story of Saul is from chapter 9 all the way to chapter 31. So we're not going to hit the whole thing. Obviously, we're going to fly over most of it. uh, But really, we're going to focus on chapter 15. Chapter 15 is really the turning point in Saul's reign, and uh, it's it's not a turn for the better. Um, Three parts. If you were to divide up sort of the story of King Saul, it would be in three parts. We're going to do each one, act one. The Rise of King Saul, Act 2, The Fall of King Saul, and then Act 3, The End of King Saul. That's kind of the story. Uh, As we do that, we're going to draw out three insights. Uh, For those of us who are seeking to walk by faith, seeking to honor the Lord, we're going to get insights into uh, kind of the nature of sin, our own disobedience, and that sort of thing. So let's begin with Act 1, The Rise of Saul. Uh, As I said, the people are pretty excited. Uh, The hopes are very, very high uh, they, they are walking home thinking we're getting a king. It's, it's going to be great. I would suggest to you that part of the reason that they're so excited, that their hopes are so very high, is the fact that they've never had a king before. So they don't have anything to compare it to. They can only, they can only think of how great this is going to be. This is different 
uh, if we've experienced something and have had mixed results. What occurred to me is uh, a movie that's coming out that has sort of the same name. I think that's why it occurred to me. Uh, the movie is The Rise of Skywalker. You know this movie's coming out. Um, there is, for many of us, our hope, we have a guarded sense of hopefulness about this movie. You know what I'm saying? If, if you are a Star Wars fan, you're excited because it's Star Wars, but you know that you've been disappointed in the past. And so you're, I think this is going to be good, but I'm not going to get too excited. That's not the case for the people of God. They have no bad experience. All they can think is how amazing this is going to be. They're going to have a king who's going to lead them. And in fact, at the beginning, uh, their hopes seem to be met. It seems like all of their expectation is, in fact, warranted because this guy, Saul, is amazing. So let's, let's look. I'm going to put up on the screen just the, the public declaration of, of Saul as king. This is from chapter 10. Uh, he's already been anointed. Now this is the first time he's being seen in public. Uh, starting in verse 20, it says this, Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. So they're casting lots, discerning the will of God. Verse 21, he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So, this actually, I think, is a good sign, right? You would take this as a good sign that this new king, he's not clamoring for the spotlight, right? He's hidden himself among the bags. He's not even sure he wants to step into the spotlight. You would think that this would mean, man, he's got kind of a humble heart, that this is a, this is a good thing. So the people are uh, excited about this. They, they take this as a good sign. And then when they lay eyes on him, man, their hopes are ratcheted up even more. Uh, here's what it says, verse 23. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. So he was tall. And another part of the city was more handsome than anyone else. We know that's the, what you want in a king, right? You need tallness, you need handsomeness. This is going to go very well. Everyone's very excited. And in fact, there is some success early on. Right after this, uh, Saul leads the people of God to a military victory over the Ammonites. Everyone is, even Samuel, who is fairly skeptical, when they come back victorious, he is, he's pretty stoked. Uh, here's what it says now in chapter 11. So we jump ahead to 11, uh, verse 14 and 15. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, right? They come back, they're victorious, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Man, this is a good start, right? This is, this, they couldn't have hoped for really a better beginning to this new king. Uh, he looks great. They can be proud of him. They can follow him into battle, and then he wins in battle. This is everything that they had hoped for. Unfortunately, though, as the chapters roll on, there are some red flags. I'm going to summarize one of them, one in particular, that should make people say, I'm not so sure about this guy. And that happens in chapter 13. In chapter 13, again, they're about to go into battle against the Philistines, and Samuel, who's supposed to offer the sacrifice, he's late. And so Saul is getting antsy, and so he decides just to make the sacrifice himself. Right? Even though he's not a priest, he isn't allowed, he shouldn't be doing this, he does it. And when Samuel confronts him, Saul says, well, you were late. You were late. The people were getting antsy. The Philistines were coming. I had to do something. And what we start to get a sense of is, 
And when it gets right down to it, Saul is a very pragmatic rather than faithful king. That he is willing to do what he thinks is best if need be. And in fact, the wheels really come off the wagon in chapter 15 because that's what we see. We have a, a very clear window in the heart, into the heart of Saul. And what we find is not integrity and faithfulness. We find inconsistency and pride and disobedience. So now we're going to see Act 2, the fall of King Saul. Um, at the beginning of this chapter, there is a very clear mission that uh, God sends Saul on. He says, you need to go and you need to bring divine justice against the Amalekites. And so he speaks through Samuel. Samuel tells him very clearly, you need to go and destroy all of the people and all of the animals. That's, that's the justice that God is bringing against the Amalekites. And if there's some questions about that, which I could understand there would be, some, some argue, look, this, is, this, is this ethnic cleansing? Is this genocide? What this really is, is a very clear indication that that God is going to bring justice against all the evil in the world. The Amalekites were a brutal people, known for their violence, known for their wickedness. And here, finally, after some time of patience, some time of God giving them opportunity to repent and turn from their ways, now at this point in history, God is saying, my patience has run out. You are going to get what you deserve. And so he's using his people to go and bring justice, which should reassure us that for even those Areas of sin and evil in the world that we think no one is paying attention to, in fact, God is, and that in his good time, he will bring justice. So Saul's mission is very clear. You need to go in, take out all the people, all the animals, devote them all to destruction, but uh, in chapter 15, verse 7, uh, we see a discrepancy in terms of what actually happened. So here's verse 7 to 9. And Saul defeated the Amalekites of uh, Havalah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So you can see that the problem there, right? He did not, in fact, do everything that God had called him to, not fully. And God is on to him right away. At the very moment that Saul is, is disobeying, uh, Samuel hears the voice of God. So here's verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, and God said, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Now there's a couple of questions that probably pop up in our mind as we read through that, that verse in particular. The first is, how, how can we talk about God regretting something. Because to regret something, we usually use that to mean, I wish I had done something different. Or I wish I had not done that thing. For example, uh, if a young woman were to say, I wish, uh, I regret that I got my boyfriend's face tattooed on my arm, we would, we would understand that. Right? She wishes she had done something different. That wasn't a good choice. Uh, how do we talk about God not making good choices? Is that, is that what this means? That God wishes he had done something different? Does the Bible not say that God is perfect and does everything perfectly in the perfect timing? The answer is yes. So how do we understand that? The way we understand it is that that's not the only way to understand the word regret. Uh, there are many times when we use the word regret simply to express sorrow. Uh, you will hear, you will get a letter in the mail saying, we regret to inform you that you have not paid your bill and you're overdue. I don't know if they actually regret telling us that, but the sense is that, you know, we're sorry to tell you that you, still owe some, that you still owe some money. We send our regrets when we can't make it to a dinner uh, party 
It doesn't mean we wish we were there because if we did, we would probably be there. We're just saying, look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I can't make it. It's that sense in which uh, the Bible here uses regret, that, that God is in fact sorrowful because of the disobedience of Saul. He knows the heartache it's going to bring. He is experiencing in that moment the dishonor that's coming from a king who's not listening to him. And we see this, this same response kind of mirrored in Samuel. Right? That might be another question you ask. Man, why is Samuel so broken hearted? He's angry and crying all night. I mean, on the face of it, it doesn't seem like that big a deal, right? Saul mostly did what God was calling him to do. Isn't that, wasn't that the most important thing? That he defeated the Amalekites? They can't be a threat anymore? Wasn't that the thing that God was most concerned about? In fact, the answer is, is no. That was not the most important thing, at least in regards to King Saul. The most important thing is that he would obey the voice of God. And Samuel cries all night because he knows what this means. He knows that Saul is not the king that the people hope for. He's not the king that will, in fact, lead them into righteousness and into peace and into security. In fact, Samuel's own words of warning were probably ringing in his ears. I'm just going to read to you uh, back in chapter 12. He was looking at the people of God and and Saul. This is what he said. He said, If both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. See, Samuel knows the seriousness of what's going on here. This is the first insight we glean from this text. Disobedience to God's word is always sin and it's always serious. Now this is usually tough for us to grasp as human beings because we tend to have a high tolerance for sin. We tend to think it's, it's really not that big a deal. In fact, we look at Samuel and we think, man, that, that's got to be an overreaction. Right? Who weeps all night for something they, they didn't even do? But I'd suggest that we tend to take sin lightly because we don't see it clearly. I want to give a, just an illustration, one that I think has been used many times before, but it's helpful. It's helpful, I think, to think of sin uh, in the way that we would think of cancer. Now, we know in a general sense that, that cancer is bad. We know that. We, we know, if you know anything about cancer, we know that it's destructive, that it's harmful, that a, that a cancer cell will take over healthy cells, will render them malignant, will destroy. I mean, that, it's a destructive force in our body. We know in a, in a general sense that it's bad. But if we've had any first-hand experience with cancer, we know it's bad in a much deeper way. If we have, uh, unfortunately, had to go through cancer treatment, we know the pain, the, the heartache, the trauma that it causes. If we've had someone in our life who's dealt with cancer or died from cancer, we, when we hear cancer, then we don't just think intellectually that it's a bad thing. We have an emotional response. We know the devastation that it can cause. But there's an even, uh, there's a third group of people that, that know cancer even more intimately, and they are those that treat cancer. They are the doctors, the oncologists, the, you know, the scientists that work with it. When they, when they think about cancer, they don't just know it in general terms or even have an emotional response. They, they know it intimately. They, they know its composition. They know its varieties. They know how difficult it is to treat. I have a friend in my community group. Um, his name's Dean, who works uh, part-time with the BC Cancer Agency, does statistics there, and what I've noticed with Dean is that when we're uh, sharing prayer requests in community group, whenever someone would share a prayer requests for someone struggling with cancer, Dean would always ask what kind of cancer it is. 
And depending on the kind of cancer, he reacts differently. Sometimes people will say, you know, it's such and such. And he'll say, oh, you know what? They, they actually have a really good uh, success rate with that kind of cancer. And he's kind of hopeful. But other times they'll share a kind and, and you can kind of see him just be weighted down. And he'll just say something like, man, that's a, that's a really tough one. Because Dean, he's looked at all the statistics. He knows the success rate. So what you have to understand is with Samuel, he is an expert on spiritual health. That's what he does. He works with people who are in sin and he knows the destructive tendencies of sin. He knows the seriousness of even a little bit of disobedience. He knows what it can do. And so when he hears that, that Saul has disobeyed, even in part, he's, he's grieved by it. He's emotionally responsive. He understands the whole complexity of the situation and he spends the rest of the night praying and crying out to God because what he's hoping is, God, would you open up Saul's eyes to see the seriousness of what he's done? Would you bring him to the point of repentance so that he can get right with you so that all of the sin within him, even the little bit of it, will not find its way out into the community of faith? So my question for us before we move on with the story is, when was the last time that that we were genuinely sorrowful for our sin? Like when was the last time that we responded that way? When we realized that we were in sin with someone else that, that we know? Have we recently had that, that level of, of brokenheartedness? See, as I said, we, we, take, we tend to take sin lightly. Right? Especially if you're outside the church, right? You, you probably would tend to think that sin is a kind of antiquated idea, right? Haven't we moved past that? Even for those of us who say we're, you know, we're following the Lord, we're seeking to live a life of faith, we very often shrug it off, right? A little bit of sin, not that, not that big a deal, right? Not really worth repenting, not really worth confessing. We turn a blind eye to a certain area. We don't really want to deal with it. But, but hear me, what if, what if that view of sin was like someone who was disregarding some counsel from a doctor to get something checked out. They said, that might be cancer. You should get that, that lump biopsied. You should do some more tests. And that person's like, eh, because they've had no experience with cancer itself. They treat it lightly. They think it's no big deal. What if we're, we're treating sin that way when in fact, if we saw it clearly, we, we would be gripped with fear, gripped with sorrow because of the destructive nature of this thing that is present within us, would we not want to change, want to flee that very thing? That's what Samuel is hoping that Saul will do. But as we're going to see, uh, Saul tends to treat sin the way that, that most of us do. Let's get back to the story. Here's verse 12. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So you see Saul's response. He meets Samuel. What does he say? Yay me. Look, look what I did. It was great. I went and did exactly what God wanted me to do. Don't ask too many questions. Don't worry about the details. In fact, if you want to look at something cool, look at this monument. They made it for me because I, I won. So we can all be happy. But of course, Samuel is quick to, to pop that celebratory balloon. Verse 14, Samuel says, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? He, he's pointing out the irony of the situation. Saul, you're professing obedience, 
but we can all hear the sounds of the disobedience. You didn't, you didn't destroy all the animals the way that you were supposed to. Why is he doing this? Why, does he, why is he asking Saul these questions and giving him sort of this space? Why doesn't he just lay into him? The reason is he, he wants to give him a chance to repent. He's hoping, the response he's hoping for is, oh, you're right, I didn't. I need forgiveness. But that's not what we get. What we get is something uh, that I think will probably be fairly familiar to us. And that's our second insight here. Uh, we, Saul, we see it in us too. We are very adept at explaining away our sin. And that's what Saul does. The very first thing he does is he shifts the blame, which comes very natural to us. Uh, look at verse 15. Saul said, right in response, Saul said, they, the soldiers, have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So he's saying, it was the people did it. I, I was just kind of nearby. I don't know exactly what was going on. Sounds a lot like Adam in the garden, right? Lord, it was the woman you gave me. I was over here looking at a water. I didn't know what was going on. This is in our nature as human beings. All of us do this inside and outside the church. When someone comes to us and points out an area of wrongness in our lives, we are very quick to point the finger. It's effortless in terms of identifying other people and their responsibility for, for our actions, right? Why am I so angry? Well, if you knew the people in my life, if you knew the way they treated me, the way they disappointed me, then you would know why I was so angry. It's not my fault, it's theirs. Why am I so bitter? If you knew what God had allowed to happen in my life, you, you would understand my bitterness. It's, it's not my fault, it's, it's God's fault. This is the nature of human beings in the way that we seek to avoid the conviction of sin. We, we want to find other people and point to them as responsible. But Samuel is not buying it. I love verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop! Right? You can picture the thing. He says, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Here Saul is, Samuel is reminding Saul, look, you're not a, a kid from the tribe of Benjamin anymore. You're the king. You had a job to do. Why didn't you just do your job again? Again here, Samuel is giving him an opportunity to repent to again feel the weight of the Spirit of God and, and for him just to say, ah, you're right, I should have done that. But he doesn't. He continues to explain away his sin, this time by, by rationalizing. So verse 20 and 21, And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Notice what he does. He emphasizes all the ways that he did obey. He said, I, did, I went on the mission. I defeated the Amalekites, right? And the people, look, they, they had a good reason for it. There's a great reason why we didn't destroy all the animals. We wanted to sacrifice them to God. We, we have a plan for a great ceremony. God is really going to be honored. Do you notice that we always have very good reasons for disobeying God? We always have a long list of, of reasons why our plan, our deviation for what God said is best is the right way to go. 
We always have good reasons for ignoring our sin, for not confessing our sin, for, for hiding it. But the truth of the matter is that it, it never ends up better. And Samuel cuts through all of Saul's kind of self-serving spin campaign and he rebukes him strongly and kind of gets right to the heart of the matter. Here's verse 22 and 23. Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So Samuel's response is basically, look, God is not impressed by grand displays of worship if your heart is not in it. Because that's really what Saul was trying to do, right? He was, he was trying to say, look, we're going to have a big, a, big, a big ceremony, a grand celebration, a, a big show of worship. And God basically says, save your worship if your heart is not in it. Which we might ask, you know, why? It's, it seems kind of harsh. Well, here's our third insight. Half-hearted obedience really reveals a heart of rebellion. See, that's what we see here in, in Saul. But this is, I mean, this is the way that we, what Saul is doing, we tend to see our lives that way, don't we? Don't we tend to, to emphasize the good things that we've done, our, our obedience, and don't we tend to think that that outweighs or at least counterbalances the areas of, of sin or where we haven't done things well, right? If you take it on the whole, Lord, I, I'm not that bad a person. In fact, I'm certainly better than him. So we, shouldn't we be happy with that? In fact, there are some things in our lives that work that way. We, for example, Don and I were uh, in a meeting with our uh, financial planner and he was pointing out that there's a certain mutual fund that last year had uh, a number of months, about four months of negative returns. But he pointed out that overall, in the rest of the other months, they were in the positive. And if you took it at the end of the year, the fund actually made money. And his point was that that's the thing that matters, right? Sure, there's some negative parts, but overall, it was in the positive. Isn't that what is most important all the time? And the answer is it's actually not the way things work for certain things in our lives, certain important things. It's not the way it works with our sin, not the way it works with our moral standing before God. I'll give you an example. It's not even the way it works in marriage. Just ask this question. Would it be possible, would it be acceptable for a wife to be mostly faithful to her husband? Right? Like, like most of the time. Like 95%. Like in a year, mostly, so most of the time, fine. Just a couple of times she fooled around on him. Wouldn't that be all right? That's a lot of faithfulness. Isn't that enough to counterbalance the, and the answer is of course no. No, it's not enough. It's not enough because it betrays the sanctity of marriage because it's, it's hurtful and sinful and brings dis destruction. The whole relationship can fall apart. That's, that's the same thing that we see with sin. And so what, what God's word does here through Samuel is cut right to the heart of the matter with Saul, which is this. Saul, you're professing to worship me and yet at your heart, really you're living your own life. Really at, at your heart, you're doing things your own way. You're building your own kingdom. You're not submissive to me and my voice. In fact, the language that Samuel uses uh, points us in that direction. Look back to verse 23. uses the word rebellion for rebellion. That's what he's calling this is. This is rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as the iniquity of idolatry. 
So he's rebelling against God, presuming that he knows what is best. And Samuel calls that idolatry. You're worshiping a false God. Your own wisdom, going your own way because you think it's best. And you're pretending that because of all the other superficial areas of obedience that everything's fine, but it's, it's not fine. Now by this point, especially you know, if you're not used to gathering with the church, you, you, might, you might be wondering about all this emphasis on obedience. You might be thinking to yourself, man, this God of the Bible, man, he, he always wants it done his way, right? That sounds like, I mean, anyone else doing that, we would call them a dictator or an autocrat, someone who doesn't want any other you know, input. And it's like, just my way is the right way. How can that be a loving God? And the answer is because it is different when it's the God of the universe. See, God is not seeking just to puff himself up. He's seeking our best. He knows what will happen when we follow our wisdom. And we should know it because it's, it's written down here and in the pages of human history. It never goes well when we take God out of the picture and we do what we think is best. It always ends in destruction and heartache and what God is saying to his people and certainly to his king. Look, if you want what's best for you and for your people, you need to hear my voice. Because I'm the God of the universe, the God who made you, the God who will direct you to a place of security and, and righteousness and peace. See, there may be some of us that are living under the delusion that, that we can have a life of partial obedience. Right? That we mostly obey and that it will end up in joy and peace and security for us. But what we see over and over again in human history, in the pages of scriptures, that, that never ends well. It's not that we need to be perfect. It's not a call for us to be God. It's a call for us to, to trust in the one who was perfect and have a heart that genuinely desires obedience. Now, if you're still not sure about whether, you know, this is really a big deal, we, we should look at the end of Saul because it is rather convincing that things don't go well. So here's Act 3, the end of Saul. You may have noticed that uh, the end of his kingship was already mentioned. So verse 23, uh, Samuel says to him, look, the Lord has also rejected you from being king. Saul kind of glosses over this. He doesn't really pay attention to that. Uh, what he thinks he can do is do a quick apology and then get on with things, right? Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to go great. I'm, yeah, it's, that was not a great thing, but let's move forward. We've got plans. I've got plans. Let's keep moving in that direction. But the truth is pretty clear. Israel's first try at a king is a total bust, right? All their hopes were misplaced. All their enthusiasm was unwarranted. God had removed his blessing from Saul. And Samuel's response at the end of the chapter really reflects um, the people's heart, I think, in this moment. And we see a window into God's heart also. Here's what it says at the end of chapter 15. This is verse 35. It says, Samuel grieved over Saul the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. Again, you see an expression of sorrow that, that this is, this is going to be heartache for the people of God. So when we take a step back, remember kind of the, the sermon series itself is tracing the desire for a king. By this point in the, in the kind of the arc and the search for, for a king, uh, we, we have some questions, right, that need to be answered. Uh, the first question is, well, what happens to Saul? Right? How, how do things go? It's only chapter 15. He's alive till chapter 31. How, how do things go? You would think, you would think by this point that Saul would, would learn his lesson. Right? You would think that for the rest of his time, he would be clinging to God for help, but that's not what happens. In fact, what he clings to is his own throne. 
If you know the story, you know that, that he finds security and identity in being king. And even though God has told him, like, you're not king anymore, he won't have it. He fights for his, his crown. He tries to block the, the new king who is coming. And he descends into this, this spiral of, of kind of d- depression and imbalance. By the end of his life, I mean, he, he, his end is tragic and violent. He, he falls on his own sword. The Philistines are coming around him. He's fearful that he'll be taken captive. And it's just a shameful end. It's, it's a horrible end to this, to this man who had such promise for his people. So what then happens to Israel? Right? Because the people of God, they were excited. They were hopeful. You would think by this point, they would come to God, or at least to Samuel, and say, uh, yeah, you know that whole idea about a king? Maybe, maybe we'll do something else. Right? Because that didn't go so well. You'd think they would show some measure of repentance, you might think that God would write in the sky, I told you so, right? You knew this was going to end bad, I told you. But in fact, neither of those things happen. What we see is the grace of God. What we see is that, that God is in fact working out a better plan for his people to give them a better king. And we see this right within this uh, turning point chapter, chapter 15. I'm going to look back at verse 28. This is when Samuel is trying to convince Saul, look, you're not, you're not going to be king anymore says this in verse 28. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And there we know, if we look ahead, that he's talking about David. King David, that's what we're going to look at next week, the next chapter in terms of our, our search for the king of, of Israel. And he is a, a better king. But really what we're seeing here is that God is working out, not, not in opposition to the will of the people, but amazingly, through their misguided demands, through their failings, God is still at work. God is pointing us toward a better king. Not just David, but the, the king to come, King Jesus. So the third question, what, what does this mean then for us? In, in real time, in this story, the Israelites are in a time of waiting, right? They're in a time of hoping. That they're, they're hoping that God is going to bring them this king. They're waiting for the next chapter. We already know where this is going to go. We know the through line all the way to the, to the manger in Bethlehem. So how do we make sense? What, what is there for us in this really tragic story of King Saul? I, I'd say there's at least two things that, that even us, or maybe especially us, the other side of the cross, that we can, we can glean from this text. Two lessons that we can learn from Saul. We're going to end with this. First thing is this. It's possible. It's possible to be very religious without ever really knowing God. That's really what we see in Saul, right? There's lots of good things about him. Lots of things you could point to. If he was living here today, he would be here probably sitting with us. He gathered with God's people. He would be, you know, have a study Bible under his arm. He'd be a community group. He'd be a Bible study. He would be a very religious person who would have, know all the rhetoric. And yet when it came down to it, his heart was a heart that was not submissive to the Lord. And that was the defining factor. Do you know that that's very possible that any one of us can live that same life. Where there'd be a sense in which, you know, we're religious, we talk the right talk, and in some ways we're walking the right walk, but when it comes to our heart, when it comes to the testing of our faith, we tend to go with our own wisdom rather than God. So the question we should be asking ourselves is, do we really believe that God's way is best? Especially when it counteracts our own wisdom for a certain certain area of our life. That's the first thing. Secondly, we should embrace repentance. Embrace repentance. We tend to avoid it. 
It tends to be the last thing in a long list of, of uh, ways to make our life better. You know, if we finally get to it, I, I guess I should repent. I guess I should be honest before the Lord. That's, what, that's the problem with Saul. He never really gets repentance. That we, he gets close. Let me, let me show you how close he gets. This is still in chapter 15. This is verse 30. When, you know, Samuel really presses into him, here's his response. He says, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. See what he says. Okay, yes, you're right. I have sinned. But listen, let's get on to the ceremony. Let's get on to the honor and all of that. It's like a a short pit stop on, on the road to the plan that he still has for his life. There's no genuine sense of remorse, genuine sense of grief. The Bible calls this a worldly grief where we pause for a moment and are sorrowful in a sense, but it's very superficial. There's no real sense in which we see the error of our ways. There's no real desire to turn from that behavior. That's the thing with Saul. He does the same thing over and over again. He, he chooses a pragmatic, self-serving, self-aggrandizing course of action rather than following what God says is best. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 7, we have these two kinds of of grief uh, outlined very clearly, concisely. Uh, Paul writing there says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If you're ever looking for a picture of someone who had worldly grief leading to death, you, you could look at King Saul. Right? A lot of show, a lot of, a lot of seeking, but no real conviction of the spirit. No real turning from his sin. And in the end, death on a number of levels for him. But you notice there in that verse, it says godly grief, it does produce a repentance that leads to salvation. Salvation, that if you're wondering, if you need to be reminded, because we talked a lot about obedience, right? if you're wondering what is the path to salvation, it is not, in fact, a call for us to be perfect. It is not, thankfully, a call for us to, to do everything perfectly and to, to be God The call to salvation is one for us to acknowledge our wrongs, for us to submit ourselves to the the cross and to say, Jesus, you are the king who came, but you, you came not just to lead us, but to die for us, to live the perfect life we couldn't live in perfect obedience and then go to the cross to take the penalty of sin upon yourself. Godly grief is a grief that is remorseful for our sin, but hopeful in Christ. And you see that it leads to salvation. It leads to not death, but genuine life. Now we have the opportunity today, as I said, it's Baptism Sunday. And baptism is a fantastic sacrament of the church because it points to that very thing, right? In case you weren't clear, baptism is, is, a, is a sign. It's an outward demonstration of an inward change. And we're gonna have opportunity to hear the testimonies uh, we've had, we're having four people baptized. We had one in the previous gathering. Malcolm was baptized. And in this gathering, we have Leah, uh, Leah and Rachel being baptized. And in their testimonies, they have an opportunity to tell the world what God has done in them. Their sorrowfulness for sin. Their hopefulness in Christ. And we as a church and guests have an opportunity to rejoice with them. My hope, though, is that it will not just be a a celebration for a great moment in the life of someone we know or someone in our church, but that we would genuinely be excited for the saving work that God does in sinful human beings. That that is the whole point of baptism. And my ultimate hope is that if there are any here, any one of us who are resisting repentance, 
allowing areas of sin to, to fester or simply have never come to the Lord asking for help. My hope is that we will see. We will see the power of God to transform lives and to bring hope in all situations. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to hear their testimonies, then we're going we're to baptize. Uh, Lord, thank you so much. Thank you, God, for, for your love for us. Thank you, God, that even through this, this difficult text, Lord, uh, difficult in the sense that our hearts are broken, both for King Saul way back in the day and for the people who he, he led really to hopelessness rather than where he should have. God, the truth is that, that any one of us has done that at many times of our life. And yet you're, you're a gracious, loving God. And you recognize that we could not keep all the commandments on our own. Lord, we needed help, and so you sent your son. God, I pray that you would, you would transform us from the inside out. Lord, you'd bring comfort, you'd bring conviction. Lord, that if, if we are resisting repentance, Lord, that we, would, we wouldn't wait any longer. And Lord, I pray especially for those who are being baptized now. God, would you, would you display yourself in a magnificent way in this act of obedience and through their story and Lord, you preserve them and protect them. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hi, my name is Leah. I started attending Tri-City Church around Easter of last year. I had been soul searching for a couple of years and just felt a little lost and like there was more to life than how I was living. One day I just felt called to start reading the Bible and it really spoke to me and I could just feel it was the truth. A good friend encouraged me to try church and I've been attending since. I started to realize I wasn't building my life with the right focus and like I had been living in darkness and sin. I want to be baptized so I can follow God's word and be obedient to him, also to publicly declare my love and faithfulness to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hi, my name is Malcolm. I was born into a Christian family where I knew I was supposed to follow God, but I didn't fully understand what that meant until coming to Tri-City Church. I was in the car with my sister Megan one day, and I felt really emotional, and she talked me through giving my life to God. It was that day I realized that God had a plan for me. Since then, I've met so many new people who have helped me find my path to serve God rather than myself. Now I fully understand that I need to follow God's word and not lead a life of sin. Hi, my name is Rachel. Growing up in a household of faith, I had convinced myself that I always had the love of Christ in my heart and that I was pursuing Him with all my heart, mind, and soul. I had later realized that this wasn't the case and that I truly was in desperation for the things of God. I have a plan for my life, and that plan is this. I want to grow into a woman who has the love of Christ in my heart, a woman who has the true fruit of the Spirit, and I want to raise my future children with the same wisdom from Christ as my mother has so done with her five children. I believe the Lord has heard the cries in my heart and is answering my every needs. The Lord of mercy and grace has changed my life forever, and I will continue to live my life by faith and live my life in honor and glory of Him. Hi, my name is Leah. I grew up in a God-centered home where praying and reading the Bible as a family was normal. It wasn't until I was 12 that I took my relationship with God seriously. I loved sharing Christ with unbelievers, but I quickly realized that in order to do so, I would need a deeper level of understanding of God and theology. By digging deeper, I started to understand my need for Him and His forgiveness over my life. I am choosing today to get baptized because I want the world to know my love for Christ and the fact that I am committing myself to Him for the rest of my life. <laughs> 